Well, um, uh, welcome, uh, good evening, um, everybody. Um, my name is William Arthurs. Um, I edit the London Society Journal, which you should have uh, received a copy of. Um, and um, I'd like to welcome you all to this um, debate on architecture and happiness. We're delighted to have with us uh, Ben Rogers and Roger Scruton, and the debate will be chaired by Simon Glendinning. Um, before we begin, perhaps I should say a few words about the society in the journal. The London Society was um, founded in 1912. It's a time when London was going through great um, architectural changes as a combination of um, a civic amenities society, um, uh, an architectural preservation lobby, um, and um, an early example of an urban think tank. Um, and through the years, the society has contributed to um, debates about the planning of London. Um, as always with um, the older organisations need to go through periods of renewal and change to um, ensure that they remain relevant to society today and um, if you are interested in the society please look at its website uh, you'll find a membership form towards the back of the, the journal uh, we would be very pleased the society is always pleased to welcome new members with new ideas who can maybe help in volunteering and helping organising events and maybe serving on the committee. Um, so uh, that's enough from me now, and I'd like to hand over to our debaters. Well, uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the LSE. I'm Simon Glendening. I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy, and I'm delighted to be chairing this dialogue tonight on architecture and happiness with Ben Rogers and Roger Scruton. The last time uh, Roger Scruton came to the LSE, I think, to talk at least for the Forum for European Philosophy, we were in a room uh, which was meant to seat a little over 50 people and we had this many people trying to get in. It was extraordinary and uh, I'm delighted that we've got rather more comfortable uh, facilities today. Um, the, what we're going to do tonight is uh, give each of our uh, guests an, uh, an initial go on their own and uninterrupted and uh, Ben is going to uh, make the first blow uh, rather against the idea of an important or a, an overriding in, in importance of um, happiness in considerations of architecture and uh, then Roger will get his chance at some sort of counter blow where he'll rather defend the idea of the importance of happiness uh, at least defending its significance. And I, after they've had their first goes, I'm going to try to encourage them to engage in some uh, um, dialogue of sorts. And then when, when that's been going, and perhaps will have been going for about an hour at that point, um, I'll open it up and with, with opportunity for you to ask questions and, and brief contributions of your own, and then finally give them the last word in the last few minutes. Okay, so first of all then, Ben, you're, Ben Rogers, you're going to uh, make our first, your first contribution. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you, um, thank you, William. Actually, it's, as William was describing uh, his journal as um, originating in one of the first, or well, the first think tank for London, um, uh, I'm the director of a new think tank for London. Uh, which I always describe as the only think tank for London, so I'm going to have to be more careful now, and I'm going to describe it as the latest think tank for London. Um, right, uh, well, we've got the technology sorted out. We were struggling with our Mac technology, which was sort of ironic on the, 
the day that the news of Steve Jobs' death was announced. I was cursing uh, the Mac, but then I'm now going to be more, more, more pious. Um, uh, right, what I want to do is um, I'm going to talk about a single... Uh, why is it doing that? <laughs> um, sorry, hang on a second. Um, why, why is it going back and forth like that? I want, to, I want to be able to move through them one by one. Okay, there you go, you see what I mean? Do I, do I just use this? No, I oh, use that. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. But I'm giving away. You know, you, I'm giving away. You'll know that the butler did it. Like if this goes on, I'm giving it away. The sort of end. Okay, there we go. Um, I'm going to talk about a, a single piece of architecture, which is which is this one here, um, uh, and then just a few sort of reflections on uh, the relationship between. Um, architecture and happiness and why I think um, architects uh, and, and designers would be ill-advised to spend too much time thinking about happiness. Can you all hear me? Yeah, okay, great. Uh, and the building I'm going to talk about is this one, uh, which is Pillwood um, in, uh, in Cornwall. Um, uh, uh, it's designed by uh, uh, Kahuna Miller, an architectural practice, um, particularly by John Miller. Uh, has a particular importance to me because it's our family uh, our family house, our fam family holiday house, uh, and uh, the architect John Miller uh, um, designed it, who was my stepfather, designed it with my mother, um, Sue Rogers, uh, and uh, I know it very well, it just seemed a good idea to sort of focus on a single work of architecture. So this is a house built, I think, in 1974. Um, it sits in a wood uh, on the edge of a creek uh, which feeds into the Fowl Estuary uh, in, uh, on the uh, south coast of Cornwall. Um, and it is a, uh, a three-bedroom uh, summer house. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, I say built in 19, um, built in 1974. Um, the plan uh, is pretty simple. Um, this is the first time I've ever spoken to a plan, so I'm not going to use any technical language. Don't worry. Uh, but basically, it's uh, two floors. Um, on the ground floor, uh, it's divided into sort of three uh, sections. The front section is a sort of play space, open space. Uh, there's a, a middle section which divides into two bedrooms and then there's a back section which divides, uh, if you're, this is the top, top plan here, but on the bottom floor divides into another bedroom on one side, another bedroom on one side and uh, this here downstairs is the bathroom and then there are two um, spiral staircases, two spiral staircases uh, connecting uh, the top and the bottom. Um, and then on top floor uh, you've got um, you've got a kitchen and dining and living area. Uh, and it's built into the back of a, it's built into a rather steep bank and it looks out onto the sea. Right. Uh, and I think one important thing to say is that the, all the doors uh, for the bedrooms slide open so that in the day you sort of open the house up, in the evening you close all the sliding doors and you have bedrooms, uh, there's no corridors and uh, not much privacy. Uh, uh, and we don't rent it out because um, we'd like to, but uh, uh, we worry about children falling off the edge. So there are, you know, these are some of the sort of practical, some of the practical issues. Um, right. Well, what? Uh, what? I, our first appearance. This house. Hang on a second. Sorry. So there. Some. And let me let me be. Let me say a few other things about it. Actually. So, um, as I say, it's built built of. Um, GDP fiberglass, that's these things here. Uh, so this is the play space I mentioned, the bedrooms are in here, that's the, the 
and uh, and it looks at first looks at first sight like an absolutely typical piece of 1970s um, sort of high tech futurist modern architecture. It's built of all the latest kit, the latest sort of stuff. Um, uh, it's got bright colours. It's sort of futuristic. It's obviously sort of you know a, a modern building. Um, it looks a bit like it sort of might have landed uh, from outer space. Um, uh, it's clearly a sort of thing of um, of the future. The structure is exposed, as was the sort of you know the the, the fashion with, with, with in that period of architecture. Uh, enormous care was put into thinking about um, how the bits uh, join together, and you can see exactly what it's what it's made of. Um, uh, and uh, and it's a sort of you know I sometimes say it's like you know if Le Corbusier said um, uh, he wanted to create machines for living in. This is very much um, a machine for for holidaying in. Uh, looks like sort of something which maybe fell from space and landed in the wood. And it is all of those things. I mean, it is all of those things. It, it is it is a sort of you know uh, a, a sort of you know in many ways a sort of you know absolutely its identity is that of a sort of you know a modern uh, house. Um, you know, very much a sort of product of the modern movement. Uh, but it's much more than that, it seems to me, which is what makes it actually a really interesting piece of architecture. It's full of echoes of different building types and different styles. Um, it's, it's actually very, very hard to sort of... Uh, well, it, has, it has a sort of si a, a number of sort of competing identities which it brings into play and which are actually never quite resolved. Uh, and um, that's what I think you know, makes, it, makes it a special house that it is. Uh, so what are those identities? Um, well, first of all, I think clearly in lots of ways um, it's, a, it's a classical building. You know, it's got columns. Uh, I don't know if you can see that, but it's, it's, it, it's got uh, you know, held up by columns. The columns are even green, I think, in a way, um, echoing the fact that classical columns also made references to, to trees with their, with their sort of capitals. Um, it is rigorously geometric, both in plan and in section. Uh, I mean, I used to you know, enjoy drawing it even as a sort of seven or eight-year-old child because it was so easy to draw. Um, uh, you can divide it up, as I say. It's, it's, it's very, you know, and in that sense, it, it refers back to or alludes back to or is a sort of continuation of um, the sort of classical, uh, the classical style uh, with its emphasis on, on you know, uh, geometry. Uh, and the sort of Palladian villa and English or British versions of the Palladian countryside villa, it sort of stands rather distinct from the nature around of it, around it, which I think of as being, you know, in a sort of, sort of a classical feature. I mean, it's very sort of composed, self-contained. Um, it's got a great view, as 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 you as you saw quickly of of of, of the creek. Um, there's 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 the sort of creek, but it doesn't look out onto the creek. It sort of sits. Facing forward, it doesn't. You know, a lot, lot, lot of modern houses try and orientate themselves towards the view. It's sort of more composed, more classical than that. Um, uh, so, in that sense, yeah, I think I, I think you know, lying there sometimes, look, looking up, uh, it is like being in a sort of um, a Pythagorean, a Pythagorean, um, you know, uh, entity. It's all, it's all, 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 all platonic. You feel you're in a sort of, you know, a, a universe. Which is um, uh, you know, runs along mathematical um, routes, uh, but it's also, I think, a house in many ways, sort of um, built in the in the vernacular. Uh, 
it's uh, and particularly you know, it alludes to the world of um, sailing boats uh, around it. So uh, it's built of GDP, um, which many sailing boats uh, are, are, are built out of, uh, and the, the the blinds that hang down from here are very much like um, very much like sails. Uh, so in that sense, it is it is you know it it alludes to it alludes to to you know the old tradition of, of boat building that's always taken place in this creek. Um, it's also very English in the sense that it's uh, you know the English are great builders of castles, but also of greenhouses, and it is a sort of greenhouse. Um, it gets get, gets quite hot in the in in the, in the summer, but you open the doors and just uh, spill out onto the lawn, and and uh, and play outside. Um, and uh, the English are also great builders of pavilions, and actually it is very much like a like a pavilion. Uh, so um, you know, I, I, I think it, it has it has a sort of there's a sort of you know a, a vernacular or sort of at least I want to say it's sort of a national sort of quality to it as well. Um, uh, there's also um, another element to it, or another sort of identity to it, which actually, in some ways, I feel it's very archaic. Well, I, I want to say it's very green. Actually, I think I want to say it's very green. It's very green, first of all, in the fact that it's absolutely tiny. Um, it feels when you're inside very spacious, um, but the footprint is absolutely tiny. Uh, it just squeezes in three bedrooms um, because there's no sort of corridors, you know, it, it, uh, um, and because uh, and because it is just small. Um, it is small. Uh, it's it's a size. It's probably the size of sort of you know two fishermen's cottages or sort of modest, you know, a modest sort of a modest, uh, very modest sort of farmhouse. It's sort of nestled in the woods um, and feels very much part of the woods. The the floor. I don't know, you can see that here. But the floor is is made of um, orange, uh, orange lino. The columns, as I said, are green for the trees and the growth, and the, the blinds are blue for the sky. Um, and I think it is, it is a bit like a sort of woodman's hut or something you know, even more prehistoric than that. It's something more pre prehistorical than that. It's something which is, which, which is, which is to me, you know, um, very much at home in its, in its, in its wood. Uh, and it's important to me, and it's important uh, to the architect. I think that actually, unlike a lot of the uh, newer developments along the creek, of which there've been quite a few, which are in many ways traditional with pitch, pitch roofs and the rest of it, they, you, you see them very clearly. This is buried in the wood, and you can't see it at all um, uh, from 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 the creek. So I think it's a sort of modest green building, not not in that sort of not in the sort of worthy sense that it's low energy. I mean, those things are important, but in a sort of deeper, I think it's deeper, sort of uh, deeper, more interesting. Um, sense. So, um, so, so there we have sort of some of its sort of you know competing identities. Um, and as I say, sort of it's you know what makes it I think a special building is that all those things are going on in it. Um, and uh, though I have um, you know been going in it for years, I'm always sort of I'm always playing with it in my mind when I'm there. I'm always thinking, you know, what sort of building is this, and you know what does it relate to, and and those those th those those meanings, those identities are never um, quite. Resolved, uh, and yet um, it is also very sort of harmonious. It's a sort of it's you know it's it's a building with a with a centre and with a clear. Strangely enough, its it, its identities are unresolved, but it has a clear identity as well. It's not um, you know it all it all it all hangs together. Um, right. Uh, well, okay. Well, now let's think about happiness and how happiness relates to this. And this is a, this is a good building to think about. Um, uh, a good case study because of course. If there's ever a sort of building 
type that is sort of somehow, you know, built uh, not with happiness in mind, but, but a building type which might closely and superficially relate to happiness. It's surely the holiday, the holiday home, which is, uh, you know, we all have, um, most of us have happy memories of uh, childhood holidays, and we go on holiday because, um, you know, we, we sort of you know that we value the sort of leisure and leisure is associated um, with happiness. But uh, I suppose my first question is, um, did the architect in designing this building uh, have happiness as an objective? Um, I doubt he had it directly as an objective. It'd be quite a hard thing to sort of, to really have as an architectural objective. I mean, I think, I think you know, the brief was to design a holiday home, um, which you know, lent itself to the sort of activities uh, that um, you do on a holiday and the sort of you know the the the, the relationships that you have, um, would it have been better if he had designed it to make uh, people happy? I mean, I, I I suspect I suspect not. I mean, I I think uh, I think that I notice that people who try really hard to be happy are not usually very happy. Um, uh, they're not just I mean they're not just they're not just not very pleasant characters to be around. Um, because they tend to be quite um, egotistical, but they're often not very happy. I'm not sure as a parent that actually doing everything to make your child happy is the best way of um, ensuring that your child is happy. Uh, John Kay's written a book called something like Obliquity, uh, which, which explores this whole sort of paradox that actually when we go after the things that most directly that we want, they tend to, um, tend to evade us. Um, you know, firms that aim to make profit do much less well. Uh, make less money than firms that um, aim to produce things of non-monetary value, or at least don't have don't have profit making as their as their overall um, aim. Um, so, uh, so I don't you know I don't think in a sense this was a house that was built um, particularly with 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 happiness you know at the forefront of the of the architect's mind. I don't think it would be a good uh, a better house um, if it had been. Uh, you know, I also want to say um, and point out that actually the desire to create something of architectural you know, merit um, or the desire to create anything of uh, aesthetic merit can be very disruptive. Um, it is naive to think, it seems to me, that, um, you know, that uh, the world would be a happier place if more people strove um, uh, to create things of aesthetic uh, value, because actually um, those it can be quite a sort of self-absorbing process. It can be rather miserable to live with somebody who has a sort of a big artistic project that they're always pursuing. Um, so uh, that seems to me uh, an, an important part, um, uh, you know, to make. We we uh, you know couples fall out over. Um, their differences in, you know, aesthetic taste. Uh, it might be better if, 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 if sometimes we cared not, not, not more about uh, the design and architecture of the places that we live in, but less. Uh, I do know couples who have, you know, who've, who have, oh, I, know, I know couples where one is an architect and one has not been, and the architect has, you know, sort of in a sense, had the authority to create a home in his or her image, and the one who's not an architect has, has, has left <laughs> rather unhappily as a result. Um, uh, but uh, you know, and I'm now thinking of sort of Bernard Williams. Uh, the, 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 well, no. Let's, so let's so let's imagine. Um, I suppose there's another question, which is: should should we 
judge um, an architect and their activity by their contribution to human happiness. And I want to say um, that that is a factor in how we might evaluate them, but it's not the only factor. I mean, so here I do think of, of Bernard Williams' famous critique of utilitarianism, where he, um, he uh, told the story of um, uh, a young scientist um, who can't get a job anywhere else, and um, his family are poor and suffering, and he's offered a job working in the nuclear industry, but he has a sort of principled objection to the nuclear industry um, and, uh, and refuses, to take the refuses to take the job, thereby causing um, you know, additional suffering to his, to his, to, to his family, to his, to, his, to his wife and children. And Bernie Williams' point in, 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 in this is that, um, of course, uh, the, the calculations about his family's um, happiness ha have a sort of pull on him, a hold on him. He has to take them into account. But there are other, there are other sort of values um, uh, in life. And I think you could sort of play the same thing out with architects. You could imagine you know, an architect who um, uh, is the sort of breadwinner in the family, um, uh, struggling to make an ends meet, is offered a job um, with a sort of rather unscrupulous and sort of you know, poor quality uh, developer, um, and uh, has to struggle with whether to take it or not. And a sort of from a happiness prism, of course he should take the job because his family will be better off and therefore presumably happier. But you can at least recognize that there are principles about artistic integrity um, which, 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 which sort of weigh in the balance. Uh, I'm coming very near to the end of my observation, so I just wind up by saying, let's just think about the object of, of architecture, a, a beautiful building. How much does that necessarily, well, does that necessarily or always contribute um, to uh, the sum of human happiness? Um, grow up. Of course it doesn't. Um, first of all, once you've created something of beauty, uh, it will almost certainly at some point perish, um, causing, uh, you know, causing um, a loss of happiness. Uh, it might have been better if it had never been there. Um, when things have great value, uh, uh, whether it's um, aesthetic value or another sort, they become um, objects of human contest. People uh, fight over them. People quarrel over them. Um, plenty of building, uh, plenty of battles have been fought over um, buildings uh, and uh, other works of art. Um, uh, so I think I'll, I'll sort of think I'll I, I think I'll leave my observations there. I mean, my you know, my my concluding point would have got it by now is that. Um, I think architects and designers are um, uh, well advised to think about um, things other than happiness, and I don't think that um, happiness or sort of utilitarian sort of uh, uh, utilitarianism offers us a very helpful metric through um, uh, by which to evaluate uh, works of architecture. Thank you. Right, well, we're going to move um, straight on. So the two speakers will uh, change places. And I think a tech person is going to help us out to make sure we've got a new set of slides to look at. Thank you, Ben. Right, so when you're ready. Well, thank you very much, um, Simon. And, uh, Thank you, Ben, for the, introducing the topic so 
Clearly, now when when I, it was suggested that we um, uh, take part in this event, it was proposed to be a, a debate. So I assumed that we were going to disagree about something, uh, and I assumed that the main topic of disagreement would be architectural modernism, defended by Ben, and architectural traditionalism, defended by me. But um, I, I realized that, in fact, Ben has not defended architectural modernism, but uh, said some very interesting things about happiness, which um, many of which I, I agree with. But I'm going to bravely, nevertheless, attempt to uh, say something which could form uh, a sort of disagreement with him uh, in, in order to present my, in broad terms, my vision of architecture uh, and why I think it just won't do to uh, litter the countryside with houses like his. H however, <laughs> <coughs> however attractive it is. Uh, now, Ben rightly says that happiness is not an objective uh, and shouldn't be an objective of architects. It's a point made down the ages by many philosophers uh, that happiness comes only if you don't aim at it, uh, like friendship. If you aim too vigorously at friendship with someone, you'll be certain to put them off. And the same is true of happiness. Happiness comes through the fulfillment of other things. And it, of course, is not the same as pleasure, uh, or even the satisfaction of pleasure. Pleasure locks you into the moment. Happiness, as we normally think of it, is something beyond the moment, representing a kind of contentedness of being. Uh, uh, even if um, we can't obtain it by aiming it, at it, however, it is something that we value and is a test of everything else. Uh, and I think we therefore always ought to keep it in mind uh, as something which um, we human beings need uh, and the absence of which we suffer from. And the first point to make about happiness is that it is a, a social condition. We are completed by others. No one, in my view, has ever been happy alone. Of course, there are stories of hermits and anchorites who find happiness, but their happiness is found with another person, namely God. It's an act of communication that brings that happiness to them, and I think the same is true of us more normal mortals, uh, that if we are to be happy, therefore, we need the context that generates happiness, the context whereby we can relate to each other uh, as one free being to another. So if architecture is to minister to our happiness, it must, in the first instance, be an architecture of community. That's a, a point which I would like to make, um, and uh, I think this is the only point that I, I really want to make, except to point out that Ben's house, pretty and attractive though it is, is a secluded house. It's not a house which um, uh, in itself generates a community, it's a family house, uh, and um, the real architecture of happiness, if there is to be such a thing, must be devoted to creating a shared home, a settlement. Now, Ben has rightly said that architecture is a vernacular art, or, or ought um, ordinarily to be so. That's to say, uh, it, it's not like painting or music, or music at least in our classical tradition, which aims at the great experience, the great transfiguring experience which you might... Um, 
uh, might change your life through a, a moment of meditation. Architecture is just there with us every day. Uh, we have very few great architects to rely upon to build it, but we have to build it anyway. Most people who build are without any special talent. What we require from them is the basic knowledge to get things right. Uh, and um, they're usually building in confined spaces, and the more they are building a settlement for all of us, the more confined the spaces will be. So uh, the idea that the architect is setting out like the composer of a string quartet to produce the pure work of art which will transfigure the soul of all those who encounter it is bound to be wrong. The, or, the, the, the ordinary architect that we, architecture that we all come across every day is built by people as talentless as ourselves. Uh, and uh, the, our main problem, therefore, is to ensure that they can nevertheless create the kind of environment in which we can all be contented. And, and I think that that means that they must obey certain constraints, aesthetic constraints. Even if you are untalented and not a, a great artist, you still have an idea of what aesthetic constraints are. You yourself uh, employ them every day and every moment of the day. Uh, in your manners towards each other, in how you dress, in how you behave at table, in how you arrange your room, how you sh shuffle things about on your desk. We're all aware of the fact that aesthetic constraints uh, impinge upon our lives in every possible way, and they do so precisely because we are social beings who want to look right to others and do things in a way that others will feel at home with. Uh, this means that architectural dreamers who have a, a great visions, are a potential menace. And uh, uh, the one, uh, the greatest of them all, those, of the, all those menaces, is Le Corbusier, whose first dream was to demolish Paris. When he found that that was not uh, to everybody's uh, satisfaction, he applied to demolish Algiers instead. That too didn't get consent, although he worked very hard on it when he was uh, in charge of uh, architecture in the Vichy government in the war. Finally, he was let loose on the innocent, uh, uh, non-existent town of Chandigarh in India, producing this, uh, which has never been a home to anyone uh, and stands a, a collection of concrete buildings in the middle of a climate, of a place where the climate couldn't possibly uh, be uh, encountered with any such Machinery. This is a machine for dying in. Now, um, so the, the ruling principle, therefore, it seems to me, for a vernacular architect, should be the principle of home building. We're, 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 he, he is an ordinary person, let's assume, building a home, but not a, not a home for me or for you, but for us. There is, a, 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 there is contained within this uh, a social reference, and that means that the buildings must fit their surroundings, and also they must last. That means they have to survive their loss of use. Ben's house, very pretty though it is, I wonder really whether it could change to being a church or a warehouse or a, a workshop or a concert hall. Maybe it could. Um, but surviving loss of use is one of the most important features of great architecture. Santa Sophia in Istanbul 
has started life as a church, became a barracks, then a stable, uh, and uh, then a, a market, uh, ended up um, as a, then a school and ended up as a mosque. And uh, why did it survive? Because of its beauty, because people wanted it to survive. Uh, and there also, um, architecture must allow the eye to rest, and that means it has to negotiate those little points uh, that all buildings present which are points of anxiety, where, where things join to each other. Ben's house is a beautiful example of things joined beautifully together so that the corners don't rasp against the eye. But I'm going to give you an example of a, another corner. This is um, from a building in, in Reading, made out of standard prefabricated modernist parts. And there is the typical corner, uh, which has accumulated... Uh, junk uh, of an indescribable vulgarity over the years uh, uh, and um, nobody can let his eye rest upon this corner uh, and of course if you look at it how that corner came about it was as it were deposited by the indifference to life uh, of the materials used to create it uh, and this again of course is a building that can't change its use it's becoming derelict now that it can't serve as offices and will have to be pulled down but uh, making corners that work and that fit is a real skill, and it's the kind of thing that does require knowledge. I'm going to give you a great corner here. It's so not a good slide, but this is Palladio at the Redentore in, in, in Venice, where you see a negotiated corner, which none of you could do, uh, <laughs> and, um, and probably no architect living now could do, but there you are. He did it, just like that. Uh, other architects should study this and recognize you know, there are problems to be solved. They can be solved in a way that produces beautiful visual harmony so the eyes can rest on the corner. Here's a, a simple building in New York where you see this is a terrible use of classical orders against all the rules made out of tin. Um, but the corner is nice. You, your eyes can rest on it. It doesn't jab into you. Nothing, no junk accumulates there. And you won't be surprised to learn that this building, although uh, relatively modern from the early part of the 20th century, has not only survived but changed its use, use time and time again. Uh, residential, offices, workshops industrial things, studios, and so on, and is now, of course, the subject of a, of a preservation order, so it were purely because people like it. Now, um, so that, that's an example of a vernacular building which is of no beauty, but nevertheless does convey knowledge, knowledge of how to get round corners, at least. Uh, but against that kind of architecture, it seems to me we've, we've inherited an architecture of unhappiness in our time, uh, which has come in large part because functionalism has taken over our way of thinking about architecture. Buildings are, are designed for their, a specific function, usually at a drawing board, so that the ground plan becomes all important, uh, ignoring the fact that this function is as mortal as the person who's, who's, who's ordered it. Uh, and so you, uh, we are, we are, we are surrounded now by transparently mortal buildings, like the one that I showed you from Reading. Uh, and it means that um, because of the tyranny of the ground plan, all buildings, or not, not all but most, are, are designed as a series of horizontal slabs. This is the modernist vernacular. Of course, great modern architects wouldn't conceive of doing, uh, doing things that way, 
But it's, uh, as Ben said, it's the ordinary vernacular we have to think about. Uh, and here's an example of what happens when you build out of horizontal slabs. A bit more of Reading. I'm obsessed with Reading because nowhere in, the human, in human history has so much ugliness accumulated in such a small space. Um, and uh, as you see, this is all abandoned uh, because it can't change its use. Uh, but it also can't be torn down without great expense and great danger. So it stands there in the centre of the town. Uh, and you might contrast this, which is obvious junk, with an ordinary Italian hilltop town. This is, you know, just thrown together with pan-tiled roofs uh, and buildings propped against each other. But the great, most important point of difference between them is that this is all designed on the vertical and not on the horizontal. Things uh, standing next to each other, the windows taking a vertical uh, posture so that you feel that these buildings are related to you in a humane way. Of course, one cause of that is uh, represented in the central building, namely that this was, the town was built by people who still believed in their God. Now, um, however, since the taking over of architecture by the horizontal ground plan, we have seen the loss of the street. And here is an example from Oxford uh, of buildings dumped along a street, sticking out into it uh, in every possible angle uh, and destroying any possible line of connection between them. These are a collection of laboratories, again, not going to change their use. Uh, and I think one should contrast this with the ordinary old-fashioned street. This is from Whitby in, in Yorkshire, an old fish, fishing town, where this is a street built over, over something like 150 years out of the, um, the bits and pieces available at the local builder's merchant. You know, these are um, ready-made windows, uh, ready-cast uh, bricks, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and built according to remnants of the classical tradition, string courses joining the houses, uh, uh, doors which are moulded according to the uh, Georgian patterns, and so on. And this is pattern book vernacular of no great merit, but it conforms exactly to what I think Ben was seeking from the vernacular architecture, that it, it, that it isn't uh, a pretentious thing, it isn't claiming any attention to itself, it is simply home. And isn't that really what you want uh, vernacular architecture to be? And uh, again, uh, you, uh, take any building in this street and you'll find that it has changed its uses, its use four or five times since it was built. Uh, what we now have, however, is not just the, the, um, the tyranny of the ground plan, but in order to, many architects have tried to get away from ground plans and construe their buildings as, uh, as organic holes often using computer programs designed for precisely that purpose. And this, I think, has produced what, what I think is the, is the most significant architecture of unhappiness in our time. And I'm going to give you an example, not a very good photograph. This is um, Cooper Square in New York by Morphosis, uh, um, recently profiled by the uh, Royal Society of Arts as something, uh, as a, a firm to be, to be noticed. Now you, you notice that, um, uh, certainly you can't avoid noticing it, uh, 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 it's um, defiance of any of the surrounding urban values is manifest, but um, 
it's there in the street like a gadget thrown out from the kitchen uh, and it's past its use. There's no other use it can have than the, uh, than the ceremonial use to which it was designed. And you, and you notice that, you have to, that uh, in order to clean the windows, you have to block the street anyway. Um, and I think that if you see, uh, contrast it with the thing to the left of it, to the right of it, uh, uh, which um, modestly abuts on the street without claiming any attention to itself, you will see that, uh, exactly what is happening when such buildings begin to proliferate in the centres of our cities. So, um, having said all that, I, I don't want to be taken as making an apology for any one style, uh, uh, although I am a defender of the classical vernacular as a, a exemplified by the building to the left of, of that horror. Uh, I, I think it is perfectly possible uh, for something new to emerge that will, that will satisfy the demands that I, I'm making. Um, but uh, let me, you know, a style that's available to the talentless. But here I wanted to contrast, nevertheless, the old style of the Georgian vernacular on the, the right with the new postmodern vernacular on the left. This is Bristol. Uh, and, and I think you will see a, a radical difference between these two. Uh, that The one on the right is constructed out of verticals, that on the left out of horizontals. The, the ground plan dominates in the thing on the left. It doesn't make any obvious contact with the street. It doesn't touch the ground. It floats above it. It doesn't have any clear relation to the sky either. It just has no matching parts and therefore no posture, whereas the, the Georgian on the right is uh, all the parts match and stand side by side in a disciplined way. And uh, again, there's the great problem of changes of use. This, uh, the one on the left is designed, is the back of a great shopping mall, and that's what it will be until it's pulled down. Uh, those on the right are also new constructions, but they, some of them have been lived in, some of them, one has been a school, and some of them are being converted into offices, still keeping their facades. So I think one could, should uh, draw upon these contrasts to see exactly how architecture might further uh, uh, um, a proper happiness, a happiness of community, and how it might, might violate them. But I want to finish with a couple of, uh, with an, an, another thought, which is about happiness. Happiness is, a, is not just, a, 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 as I've said, it's not just pleasure, it's not a momentary thing. It involves a contentedness and fulfillment of the life as a whole. And we are, are mortal beings for whom death is a very important fact. And incorporating death into our life is also some, a part of happiness. To live in fear of death is, is a paradigm uh, of, of anxiety. Uh, and um, we need an architecture which both reminds us of death and accommodates it and shows, us, shows it to us as something uh, that uh, we can incorporate into our plans. And this means that every now and then architecture has to be serious, in particular when dealing with death. And here is a little example. This is from a totally modern building, um, a, a successful a little way of uh, introducing the idea of death into um, a polished exterior. Notice this is not a classical architecture, but it uses the... Uh, the uh, the motifs of classical architecture. It has mouldings around the edges. The columns are, uh, c create shadows. Uh, and, uh, of course, it use, uses classical lettering. Uh, and the proportions are based upon 
the uh, classical facade. Uh, it's, not, it's not a cheerful building at all, but it, on the other hand, it is a happy building. I want to contrast it with a, a cheerful but unhappy building. Um, <coughs> here, you see, here you see all the details of the modernist vernacular put together in order to make a, a, a cheerful little uh, welcome for the corpse. Uh, right down to the supermarket colours with which the thing is decorated. You can't tell where the corners are or how they, uh, how they blend into each other. You don't know how en anything is held up uh, and all the proportions are manifestly wrong. Uh, and it, it seems to me that an architecture that presents the idea of death to us in that kind of language is profoundly alien to the possibility of happiness. And I'll get rid of that. Thank you. Now, there, there was a point on which you both rather rapidly agreed, I think, which is the, um, an objection to the idea of happiness as an objective. The thought that you might, as it were, deliberately build something in order to make people happy or to make oneself happy. Um, perhaps, perhaps we could start off with, uh, nevertheless, uh, Roger, how, how you see happiness as nevertheless an end of a certain kind. How do we think of it when it's not an objective but nevertheless an end? I think that's a very good question. Uh, um, I don't think it's an easy question to, to answer. I, I think... Um, you know, many things that we value as, as ends uh, we can't pursue like friendship um, because pursuing them destroys them uh, and um, I suspect that happiness comes into that general category um, but um, you know if somebody says at the end of his life you know I've had a happy life um, you feel much better than if he says, I've had an unhappy life. You, mm. feel, you feel that something has happened that should have happened. Uh, and you, you ca there may be no formula for pursuing a happy life. Um, and again, it may be, as Ben says, that some, not something you pursue. But nevertheless, many of the byproducts of our, uh, of our other activities are the things that we really value. Uh, and he gave the example, and I think this is a very important one, of uh, the pursuit of profit in business. Mm. You know, um, it's well known that the, that the pursuit of profit as the sole go uh, end in a business creates alienation among the workforce and a, an unhappy atmosphere, which actually, in the end, is counterproductive. Right. Uh, and, well, we, and we sort of seen something similar in public services, where, where you know, uh, sort of. Um, New public management approach, you know, which insists on sort of targets and and and, and that assesses um, the work of, of public servants and and, and you know, professionals in public service solely by sort of targets, often has rather unexpected, um, you know, negative consequences. Uh, you know, that, that would be sort of another example, I suppose. Yeah, and and with you, Ben, um, one one of the contrasts that Roger made between the kind of account he wanted to give and the kind of account he found you giving was. Uh, the distinction between something as a home for us and the emphasis on a rather lovely word, the settlement, which oh. uh, is probably well underused in discussions of mm. architecture because, well, I don't know why, but anyway, maybe think about that. But the home for us and the home for me 
and uh, he rather drew attention to the mm. fact that you yourself was were willing to draw attention to something uh, you valued, despite the fact that it didn't seem to have this settlement dimension of right, a community. Right. Well, that, I mean, that was you know there, there are of course many fine buildings which Roger admires, which which are private homes, Palladian villas, and, and, and so forth. So I mean, it was perhaps just a, a function of the fact that I was only talking about one 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 building. But I, I take very seriously, of course. Um, you know, you sort of you, you judge uh, and assess a sort of uh, a, an architectural culture by its ability not just to create beautiful object buildings, but to create sort of settlements. Um, I think that's that. I mean, it's a debate. This is a complete disaster because actually, I, I very largely <laughs> can't well, find anything to disagree with. We can throw the point with, back with, with Roger. Roger, Roger I mean, I will make yeah. back and make one, one more. I mean, yeah. I think actually, you know, if you look, look back at sort of history of 20th century architecture, um, you know. It, it, it it was very very poor. Uh, I mean, I, th I think it did rather well when it came to sort of some, some great object buildings, including some of the buildings by the Corbusier. Uh, but um, his, in particular, grasp of town planning was absolutely you know risible, um, and uh, and it's something that you know we've, we've struggled to to create settlements for lots of reasons. I mean, one of which is the you know the the rise of the car, um, but no doubt there are lots of other. Other reasons as well. I think. I think. I actually. There is a slightly sort of whiggish story to be told about the fact that I think we are actually. You know, I'm, I'm as tempted as everyone to sort of bemoan the decline of civilization, and I often look at those buildings by, in Reading and, 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 and you know, or, or elsewhere, in sort of despair and feel, you know, this is this is this is the end. But actually, I have spent quite a lot the last few years, you know, looking at and studying um, recent uh, regeneration and, and sort of development efforts in. In, 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 the, in the UK, and I, you know, I do feel that we're we're learning how to tame the car. We're investing a bit more in the public realm. We're beginning, you know, architects understand the importance of the pavement. I mean, many many of the things that they sort of lost, uh, I think now are sort of you know coming part mm. of the sort of the common wisdom of the profession again. Roger, could I just before you come back, um, could I throw the question that I gave to Ben back to you that he emphasised the home for me or for mm. his family? And you emphasise the settlement dimension, but um, Ben just said that you too would sort of value a certain kinds of privacy, and that you, I'm sure, wouldn't want to uh, get rid of the idea of the private house in in favour of a, a, a communal one. So, um, how do you reconcile the relationship on your side between the home for me and the mm. home for us? I, I think this is a, a very important question. Um, uh, it depends, a lot depends on the me in question. Uh, some egos draw massive attention to themselves uh, and others quietly retreat into the corner. Uh, uh, and if you look at Paris, which is one of the most beautiful um, urban successes in the urban sphere, um, some quite big egos live in small flats um, <laughs> and they don't feel the need to, to, to shout me at the top of their voice uh, partly, and the, partly because the flats are built in such a way as both to respect the idea of a private uh, zone but also uh, open out into recognised courtyards um, stairways and so on in, in which your, the, the fact of your sharing your settlement with your neighbour is made visible in the architecture uh, and it's one reason why Paris has never been pulled down whereas London's always being pulled down. 
If I could just bring one more theme in before we open it up. Um, you both referred to some aspects of the works you were looking at as classical mm. and some other aspects as vernacular. And um, I, I wonder where, where you put the balance between those things, how you understand the importance of um, a classical vernacular mm. or, uh, as, as you were emphasising, a vernacular which was um, in conversation with the immediate surroundings. So, Ben, maybe you first. Well, I, I, um, I mean, I think of a sort of you know, classical architecture sort of aspiring to a sort of universal sort of language and, you know, referring back and being aware of um, the sort of, you know, that, that, that tradition which is classical, which you know, stems from uh, ancient Greece, um, uh, and, you know, and, and, and the vernacular is, 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 is something built, you know, in a local idiom out of local materials. I mean, that, that to me, but it cl clearly, it's a sort of very rough and ready um, distinction. Yes, I, I, I take a slightly different line. I think that there is a classical vernacular, something that has emerged over the three thousand years of um, civilization. Uh, uh, which includes many uh, things taken from Greece, but things taken from from the Islamic world, things taken from India as well. If you look, at, uh, this room is a terrible piece of modernist atrocity. But if you look at the doors, you will see around the panelling of the doors mouldings which have have come down to us ultimately from Rome. You know, uh, uh, and the no ordinary, uh, modest builder who was given charge of the doors, he wouldn't have done anything uh, different because that that was that was what he'd been taught to do, and they are the only bits of the room that you wouldn't want to chop uh, uh, up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is looking around. <laughs> I was just wondering whether we were in Reading. <laughs> Welcome to the University. Of <laughs> and um, I, was, I was also reminded in, in the, 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 your example from Whitby uh, where, where I visited recently and my favourite street there which I don't know if you know is called Arguments Yard which is absolutely fantastic so we'll now open Arguments Yard I, I noticed that you're very was it the very ugly one? It was called Regal. Oh yeah, Regal yes, Way. Regal yes. Way. <laughs> and there's a, there's a, there's a sign near me which is called uh, Citizens Way and then underneath it's got written private road. <laughs> Dead end. Which I think actually says a lot about the privatisation of public space in this city. Okay, so we now have an opportunity for questions. We do have um, microphones and, and the stewards have mics. There are four of them. So if you hold up your hand if you'd like to ask a question and uh, I'll pick you out and then the mics will go to you. So we've got one at the front here, first of all, please. And then we'll come down here. Hello, Louise Bamford. With the uh, greatest respect to Ben, could I just point out why his house fails Roger's settlement test? Because it has the luxury of being built, uh, being built in secluded surroundings where privacy isn't an issue. So, of course, the windows can do whatever they like because there's no one overlooking. So just gently asking him if, if, if a house for a family or whatever was going to pass a settlement test where there wasn't the luxury of, of space and seclusion, then perhaps other factors and principles would come in. And just for those of us, without wanting to sound begrudging, for those of us who live in a shoebox where the, the floor shakes because of the noise from our downstairs neighbours, perhaps other, other factors come into play when, when one's living in a city in an urban centre. Uh, setting. 
you comment on that? Yes. Well, well I, I, I certainly don't want to live in a glass box in, in, in the centre of the uh, in the centre of the city. Um, uh, I think actually glass can be a very sort of cold and unfriendly uh, material. I'll only say that, that that house is now shared between uh, ten adults and sort of twenty-five children. So it's um, you know it's, it's it, it doesn't belong to me only. Okay, we have a question down here. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, I think it's um, fine that uh, an individual like Ben or anyone else who wants uh, a personal style house built, that's no problem. The problem is uh, we're getting the radial city, if you like, everywhere and virtually nothing else. The radial city? The, ra you know, Corbusier's right. uh, and, and, well, even worse monstrosities than than that, like uh, Rogers points out, uh, and this is uh, this is uh, the the problem. I mean, eventually there won't be anything else but but that, right. because uh, they're building so fast, and 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 this and this uh, style has has taken over. Although part it, part in answer to that, in part part of Rogers' argument was that uh, those buildings don't get more than one kind of use and so they have a kind of uh, shelf life that um, means that they won't be there and lasting forever and ever. Yeah but it's very expensive to demolish a building and, uh, and then build yes. another one and since uh, we're coming up to a recession I don't think that's going to happen much. Yeah I think this is a very, it is a very important point you're making uh, um, even if these buildings do have I mean they are often are planned to last only 20 years um, it's a, they are an ecological disaster. The expense that they use extremely ecologically uh, um, <coughs> damaging materials, and uh, and the expense uh, and in their demolition, it's even worse. Uh, so we, people have to learn to do something else. That's why we're talking about this because all of I'm sure everyone in this room recognises that mistakes have been made. Uh, we can't necessarily go back to the classical vernacular that I advocate, but we've got to find some way nevertheless of going forward which recuperates those old virtues which make it possible for, to build a settlement which will outlast the uses of, a, of one generation. Now, uh, Roger, you've used the word again now. I'm going to have to push you on it. I like, I like um, pe yeah. people who write about places where people live find words that are congenial to mm. their, their own way of thinking, their sensibility with respect to that. Now, the settlement idea, what is it that you like in that? Why do you not say, say, I don't know, city or dwelling or other ways of... Well, I, I meant this to incorporate all the ways in which people live together across generations, uh -huh. saying this is ours. Yeah. You know, uh, Venice is a perfect example. Uh, you know, thirteen hundred years uh, on that one. There were two little islands, uh, and um, buildings from every moment in that thirteen hundred years built against each other on top of each other side by side but never demolishing in a crude way or very seldom if if if, if they do it it's only to build a church or something beautiful um that, that that's nice because one of the very sort of characteristic features of your work as i've seen it is that your understanding of a community always refers backwards and forwards for others to come for those who've been yeah. 
and so on, and that we mustn't think of a community just as those who happen to be around at that moment. Yeah, right. and, and so a settlement builds a kind of uh, abiding presence into, yes. the, into that. Which, uh, which I think people do into their own homes too, you know, especially if they have children. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. I was just sort of challenged the link there but you made between sort of bad development and sort of uh, a modernism because I, there, there's lots of bad development going on all over the country. There's no doubt about that. Um, and we are shockingly, I actually think we are shockingly um, sort of unangry about it. Um, I always cite. Uh, I don't sleep about it. I cite an evaluation that, 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 that Cave did, the government's architectural watchdog, on, on new houses, which I think found that I can remember, roughly. 29% of, of new houses were adequate or unsatisfactory. Now, you know, if, if that had been schools or hospitals performing at that level, it would have been a national outcry, but it didn't even make the newspapers. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is this, we are, still remain in many ways very, very architecturally or urbanly sort of, you know, uncultured illiterate. Mm -hmm. well, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, question down here. Well, I think... Um, Vitruvius, the father of architecture, I think famously started off his volumes talking about settling around a campfire. And, um, and then if we fast forward, um, I want to borrow a theme from Heidegger when he said that in, in his lecture, Building, Dwelling, Thinking. Now, he may not have been talking strictly about architecture as such, but he had this great um, notion, harassed unrest. And uh, I wanted to kind of take that to where we are now, which is um, treating our home as commodity. Um, I don't know if this microphone is still on or yeah, not. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it strikes me that we're, we're living in um, uh, an era of harassed unrest, whereby our mortgages, um, the pursuit of, of property, um, the property ladder, um, um, looking at Mr. Smith and Mrs. Smith next door, um, and I'd like to look. Uh, I'd like to explore this notion of, of our emotional connection to home. And I think, it, and I was interested as Ben starts started off looking at a family home. Professor Scruton talked about settlement, and it strikes me that, uh, and on the one hand, Professor Scruton said, uh, kind of. Um, Yes, there's a lot of modern architecture, particularly today, which is particularly dreadful. However, if you go back to the 20s, particularly in Europe, and you guys like Alfred Lewes and, and those people who are building those um, communitarian type um, blocks of flats, and, and they seem to work, and they do still seem to work. So I was just wanting maybe to explore the notion of um, our emotional connection to home and settlement, and, and maybe where have we gone wrong? I think Scruton and Heidegger together is a very attractive proposition. So it's <laughs> well, yes, um, there's a lot. Shall I, yes. shall I respond? <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of points that you're making there, and I, I, I'm not a great Heidegger fan, but that essay on building, dwelling, thinking is one of his most important utterances, I think, because he he did put his finger on something that uh, that. Uh, that um, he says uh, only where we dwell can we build and it works the other way around too only where we build can we dwell uh, and dwelling isn't something uh, that it's not just having a shelter it is something that I've been ref sort of obliquely referring to namely settling somewhere making that place your own uh, the, however one, one of the things 
to, to um, note in Heidegger is that all the concepts that he uses are really religious concepts but they're godless as well there was no god in his world but nevertheless he talks you know he's harassed um, unsettling whatever it is um, unrest uh, you know y y of course that's a religious idea you know that we're in we're driven through this veil of tears uh, as li like St Augustine saying our hearts are restless until they rest in thee and that's what Heidegger is promising in a sort of secular way and never getting there uh, and um, I, I'm I, I just visited Venice and the, the most obvious feature of it of Venice is that every little spot of that city is in the shadow of a church and bears a, a street name which refers to to some local saint you know that, that it's marked by a sense of the sacred and I think that's what Heidegger is trying to to revive but but for the use of a secular community like ours uh, and that's why I think he's important what, what was nice in the question as well is the contrast to the dwelling to the the House as commodity, home as mm. commodified living. Uh, ben, I don't know if you, 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 how, how would you see that going on in contemporary architecture? Is that something we're so utterly caught up in now as to be unavoidable? Well, it's a sort of, it's a sort of, it's a sort of policy question, really. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I certainly, I certainly think that we should be um, aiming to sort of spread home ownership. I think people who own their own home do tend to have a different relationship uh, to it than people who, who. Who rent? Um, uh, I didn't like the housing bubble any more than anyone else, and I think we desperately need to build more homes. And I think actually we need to build more ho uh, homes, which are also much bigger, which is the real issue with sort of building shoeboxes. I mean, a couple of uh, a couple of questions now. Uh, this is the point I began to make, and I, I lost with, with, with you. I suggested that the problem with lots of current development is it's that it's modernistic. But I don't think that is the problem mm -hmm. with it. I mean, I, you know, I, lots of the worst developments that I see are, are pitch roof. Yellow brick, yellow pattern brick, um, with doors, which you know, have uh, moldings. With what? With moldings. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's not. It's not as if. I mean, you know, they're 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 shockingly bad. Not because they're traditional. It's nothing to do with their idiom. It's to do just with the lack of care with which they're put together. Um, uh, yeah, and they're sort of yeah, they're they're sort of stupidity. Right, we've got lots of questions coming. We've got one here and then one up there, and then I'll, I'll have a look again, but I can see quite a few down here. There's one here. So, yeah, please. Um, I ha oh. Hello. Hello, yeah, speak nice and clear. Oh. And you'll be oh, fine. Oh, we can hear you. Um, uh, first of all, I just want to point out, I've um, recently read a book on sort of vic the Victorian home, and um, there was a good point made in that, um, which I think is relevant to hear that, um, sort of all of the menaces that didn't work from the past were torn down in the past. <laughs> so, so what's left for us are the things that survived, and and now we're left with our own modern menaces, right? So it's it's not um, the, the tenements of you know Victorian London were probably the most awful unhappy architecture, um, and I'm sure they looked very classical, but they w were rubbish, right? So anyway, um, but um, my question, I guess, is when I the first thing that strikes me when I think of happiness in architecture is, is what I see as failures of the unhappiest architecture of all, which is lots of um, London's council estates. And is, yeah, this is a very simple question, but is, to me, it, I can't fathom that any of those architects had 
anything other than than sort of economic cheapness and sort of a you know a mentality of suppressing people <laughs> when they built that you know is is if you could build architecture for social um you know social living with happiness in mind would that maybe free you from sort of um you know a um some I, I don't know would no, that no, would I that think, have helped I think that's a really good point because Ben you were, you were saying you know you shouldn't build with happiness in mind and, the, and Roger too was saying it shouldn't be an objective but here we have things where what seems in mind runs right against yeah. happiness as an end at least right but um, maybe there'll be other considerations that would be better guides I mean you know safety neighborliness uh, things which are sort of more you know Designing for sort of you know, civility and interaction, uh, you know, designing for families and places you know where children can play safely. These are sort of much more sort of concrete uh, ideas. I, I, I wish it was sort of true in a way. It'd be more, it'd be more easy. I think it'd be less disturbing if it was the case that people who designed those developments were all simply sort of cynical or money-minded, or though actually they were sort of inspired partly by you know, um, you know, genuine sort of but now fantastically naive ideas that people would sort of flourish if they were living up in the sky and that they would sort of befriend each other along these um, corridors in the sky. I think that's right, that there, sort of, are, you know, there are utopian ideas belonging to that. Roger Prevett. Yes, uh, I think one should never forget that the Bauhaus under Gropius and Hannes Meyer was conceived itself as a, a Leninist organisation. It was uh, part of the great socialist experiment and it was building its projects were to build something for the working class which would as it were have the identity of the working class imprinted on it it is utopian thinking a typical middle class way of thinking about the proles you know uh, they can be put in a box like that and then they'll be out of the way uh, and we can dictate you know to them their rations and their working hours and all the other things uh, that have been laid down in the in the Bible. Um, we've got we've got somebody actually who disagrees with that particular point. Yes. So no 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 wait for the mic if you don't mind. I'll interrupt my order just to give you an opportunity to uh, respond. I think that is utter rubbish, really. What you just said. Sorry to mm. say it um, in that particular way. Not the point rubbish. here is half of it was <laughs> the point here is that a lot of that architecture is a form of criticism on what preceded it. So the Bauhaus architects were reacting against exactly the Victorian slums. They mm. wanted to open up those homes. That they were imperfect is a completely different story. But I mean, I think if you want to historicize the this. Uh, problem of happiness and architecture, then we have to think about the things that these people reacted to. Thank See you. it in their historical context mm. and, it, and not as a kind of totalitarian yeah. attempt to control people. However, Thank you. Uh, that was a good point, but um, my, my, my father was brought up in the Victorian slum uh, Ancoats in Manchester. Uh, and it was all cleared away 
without asking the consent of the, of the residents who are pushed into little tower blocks uh, and dwindled into unhappiness. Uh, and he's never forgiven, he, he never lost his socialist convictions, alas, as a result of this, but he's never forgiven the Man Manchester Council for taking on these Bauhaus ideas. And let's face it, the estates that people like Gropius planned and built have been pulled down for the most part because they were unlivable. Um, the American housing estate, uh, construed on the same model, has suffered the same fate. Okay, we've got uh, loads more questions. If we can come in here, and then we've got two up there, one there and then one there. Um, my question's for Roger Scruton. Um, you're sort of slightly um, self-contradictory, I thought, that you were suggesting that architects shouldn't take into account what would be aesthetically pleasing and therefore create a kind of well-being, a kind of happiness. But on the other hand, you were admiring what you consider to be aesthetically pleasing, the Palladian or the classical building or Venice or the beautiful um, Italian hill towns, which are... Um, kind of the opposite of the, of the, of the structured um, symmetrical buildings, but they're asymmetrical, but also pleasing because they're of a, um, all of a piece. And um, but if you're saying that architects can't work out what would work out to be aesthetically pleasing, surely it's a nonsense because you're criticising people who turn up with these um, purely functional, cheap, mass-produced. Um, council estates or housing developments which you dislike well there must be architects who produce other plans which are more aesthetically easy. obviously they're more expensive we know they're more expensive but surely people can try and make something which is more to your taste if you were um, thinking of buying somewhere um, and in, the, in, in effect it would make you happy which you're saying you can't do That's thank you, thank you. <laughs> Well, um, you're right that I, I, there's a tension in what I was saying between two things. I wouldn't say it's a contradiction. I, I wanted to say, and I think Ben agreed with me about this, that, that it can't be the normal um, vision of the architect that he is creating some great work of art. So, so those, those majestic ideas of absolute beauty and purity and, uh, and transcendent loveliness, that, which are... A, appropriate in the builder, say, of a cathedral or something, can't be the concern of the day-to-day -day, uh, architect that, uh, who's building ordinary houses for ordinary people. And, uh, and that's what I wanted to say. But, I, but, but we shouldn't conclude from that that aesthetic requirements are unnecessary. On the contrary, I think they are of the essence, because it's through aesthetic constraints that we make ourselves agreeable to each other. Uh, and so I, I'm really agreeing with you, but aesthetic constraints are a different thing from these, you know, the, these projects that aim at absolute beauty. Uh, it's it's the difference between between uh, good manners and, and falling in love. <laughs> Excellent. Up up yeah, up the top there. Yes, we have two from the top right now. One there and one there. Hi, um, I was just wondering what Roger thought about the Barbican estate because it obviously speaks the language of um, modernist architecture, but it seems to function quite happily for you know people who live there, people who work there, people who just want to enjoy the space. Mm, thank you. Um, you may be right. 
Um, I haven't yet met anyone who, who likes it, but I haven't, I haven't had the misfortune to meet anyone who lives in it. So it could be that it's, it is one of those things, those, um, those buildings which works for people who, who have a lucky enough to have a, a flat with a balcony overlooking the landscape that it spoils. But, but the rest, the rest of us remember, who are the far the majority, have to walk under that long tunnel, mm. have to negotiate ourselves, uh, our way around those inhuman corners uh, it, to get to human places like the Guildhall or the, or the Barbican Concert Hall. You know, uh, uh, and uh, I think if you, if, you est if you put the number of people who are pleased with it, who would be residents at best, against the number of people who are displeased with it, who would be probably most of us, and I think the balance is against it. <laughs> Thank you very much. And up there, yeah, please. Well, Professor Scruton has actually talked a lot about Venice tonight, but if you, if you look, actually look at it, it's very pleasing to visitors, but to the people who actually live there, like, it's actually very, got a very small population, and mm. it's probably not a very happy place for, for residents. Shops close every year, there's very few municipal, like, municipal services, and how would you like it if your home was invaded uh, day on day by hundreds of thousands of tourists? So we might say that might be happy because it's a pleasing in an aesthetic sense, but as an urban place or as an environment, it simply may not necessarily work very well. It, it, that's a very good point. Um, obviously, Venice has lost its economic base. Uh, its, uh, its only economic base is tourism, and tourists drive out real people, uh, and inevitably that is happening. Um, I mean, Venice suffers from a sort of surfeit of beauty. Mm. I mean, that is, it is the down, you know, it is, the, and I was saying that you can have, you know, there's no, there's no necessary yeah. link between, you know, great architectural merit and other things going well. And in some ways, you know, this is a little illustration of that. Very good. Yeah. Okay, we've got a question in the middle there, yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like the crux of the issue is one of scale. And the word that came up earlier of monstrosity speaks to that. Uh -huh. mm. um, I feel the ideal of the idea of a settlement um, can come as an emergent reality from a self-organizing system. And if you build at an individual scale, much as uh, well, we can learn much from Ant, if we build thinking of the individual rather than town planning, rather than a imposition of an ordered system, um, we will achieve far more. Mm. Uh, no, I actually, do you think you could say something about planning today? I mean, it, there, there was this sort of regime of town planning which had its day in a way. Uh, well, it had, I mean, well, it, had its, it did have its day. It certainly, lots of town planning schools were closed in the 1980s. Um, it's had undergoing something but sort of renaissance. Uh -huh. um, uh, which is a which is which is a very very good thing I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's, it's but is it the, 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 the problem about town planning was that it was rather too closely allied to transport planning uh, mm. back, back in the day. That's right. And uh, and uh, you know they saw their job largely as to sort of facilitate the movement of cars around yeah. around cities. And I think we sort of I hope slightly beyond that. Though it's always a it's always a battle. But you know just to go back to what I said, I do, I do think you know I do think it's sort of been a build up of sort of we understand much more actually about the environments which you know f foster crime or you know 
uh, understand about you know how uh, how you foster civility amongst people. I mean, this, the, 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 the crucial thing actually to make for a successful settlement, it seems to me, is that you have a sort of gradation of private space, semi-private space, sort of semi-public space, sort of public space. Um, something which sort of modernists were very, very bad at understanding. Everything was always completely sort of public, you know, um, or private. Uh, uh, and I, I can see developments, you know, I mean, they're still probably the exception rather than the rule, but, you know, you do see many more developments where, which do offer communal gardens, which then open up onto a sort of park which the public at large has access to. We want to sort of keep and build on those sorts of practices. It's quite hard to do at a time of cuts. You know, local authorities, the first thing the local authorities cut is, is all these you know, public realm uh -huh. professions, mm -hmm. public realm investment. Uh, the point about scale though, I think, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a very, it is very important uh, uh, that, that um, we ought to, ha we need planning but it shouldn't be a, a way of taking control of things but a way of putting constraints on things. Uh, uh, Washington has a constraint that buildings can't be higher than the capital <laughs> and this has forced Washington to develop in a way which pushes buildings against each other uh, puts shops and residential things next to offices and so on and has kept it as a, a roughly a centripetal city of the right the Italian city and uh, by American standards really a pleasant place to be uh, and uh, in Venice um, since the 14th century there's been a constraint as to what the crenellations can be on the top of your of your building if it's built next to the Grand Canal and that, let alone the height you know this, uh, so and those constraints people can live with if you're not it, it, when people tell you what you must do uh, you know you rebel but when they tell you what you can't do but within that there is freedom to suit your purposes people accept it and I think that we ought to move more in that direction because it's not a new thing that that's how the great cities of the past were built how Athens was built good I think this might be the last question I'm afraid uh, here we are uh, the point you just made was actually what Microphone. I oh, sorry <laughs> the point you just made was actually what I wanted to ask you about that was rather I, I see I mean, I, I think that we can agree that in some architectural spaces, we are able to be much happier than in some other architectural spaces. No, architecture can't make us happy, like nothing can, it is ever elusive, blah, blah, blah. But clearly, I could be much happier in your summer house than I am in my dorm room, in which I share my bed with my refrigerator. Um, and in this way, that, that sort of concept of, of function of architecture, a kitchen that's designed that says, here is where you cook, versus a kitchen that's designed and says, here you can cook and makes you want to cook. And so I just wanted to ask about what you, what's your opinion about architecture and its relation to function and not architecture as an end for one human function, so this is an office space, but namely architecture that allows a human to function in, in, in the full, full possibility. Of, Thank of you, that. excellent. Good last question. Ben. I mean, I, I, know, I find the idea, you know, the, of, of functionalist architecture, it just, it's just so sort of wrong-headed because, you know... Functionalist. No, func function, functionalist. Functionalist. I mean, the idea, so the, so the idea that, you know, that architecture, that, 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 that designing a building is like sort of designing a machine because we don't have a sort of single function and, you know, the play, we, just, we just do sort of so many different things in, 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 in places and... Um, and of course, what, a lot of what we look, what, a lot of what we look to in buildings, what we look from in buildings, is, is not in the nature of you know functions. 
you know, we, we look, we are, we are sort of setting animals, we look for them to give us sort of pleasure. Um, it's just a sort of terribly sort of, you know, sort of narrow, um, uh, narrow um, sort of view of the world, I think. Um, I mean, I, I just, I, I, I do, I, I do think architecture should, architecture take very seriously the idea of sort of you know, human well-being um, and you know, functionality in a sort of you, know, you, you want buildings which you know in the Vitruvian sense you know commodity what is it commodity I mean firmness and fir delight, firmness and delight. Mm. Um, you want buildings which sort of you know, serve human purposes but that is a sort of the idea of, sort of human purpose is something much richer than an idea of a sort of you know a bu building serving a function okay. a machine a car serves a function a, you know, a fridge serves a function. I mean, you know, a, a, a nuclear power station serves a function, but a, a, a buildings which just serve a function in that way, I think, are very, very um, dismal things. Yes, I, 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 but we have to remember we've been living with these two terrible slogans. One, Louis Sullivan, form follows function, which is the opposite of the truth. Function follows form. Uh, in other words, if, you, if a building is beautiful, you keep it. Uh, and the other one, that the house is a machine for living in. You know, Le Corbusier emphasizing the machine aspect of architecture rather than the organic aspect. And I, I, I would say that, that this applies not just to the individual building, but to our towns too. And this is a point that was made by Jane Jacobs in her great book on the death and life of great American cities that um, American zoning laws disaggregate functions. They say that this function, that shopping has to go on here, um, workshops have to be here, factories here, residents there, and so the whole town is blown apart. And going back to Venice again, it may be true that it's losing its population, but it's still the case that in every building someone is taking a motor car to pieces, another person is shouting at his wife, Another person is offering herself as an alternative to the wife. Uh, you know, <laughs> another person is opening a bar, and so on. The, every, the, the functions have all come together in a whole, and I think that is something that we must remember. That is what su successful planning is. Right. Well, we have, I'm afraid, come to the end of our time, and uh, um, although we're not in arguments yard, and I don't think we've really had an argument, but it's been a really, really interesting discussion. I think we should. Thank our speakers warmly. Thank you very much.